Now, hearing the names of those who lost their lives defending the freedoms we enjoy as Americans stirs our emotions, and rightfully so. The gratitude we feel for those who went to war and paid the price for our freedom should tug at our hearts and even bring us to tears. In fact, just thinking about war itself stirs our emotions, fear being the most prevalent. And in a day when missiles are being fired around the world, it's hard to keep fear at bay. To think that the push of a button might unleash a nuclear holocaust is indeed a scary thought. But then again, war has always been scary. Even 2,000 years ago, there were those who thought that the next war would signal the end of the world. That's why in Matthew 24, 6, Jesus said, And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. You know, man thinks he's in control of world events, but he's not. As Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, it is God who changes the times and epochs, who removes kings and establishes kings. On the world stage, I think FDR had it right. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So let's look closer to home. What is it you are afraid of? Are you afraid of a bully who gets in your face or someone in the workplace who's after your job? Are you afraid of not making ends meet and having to go without? Are you afraid of your past catching up with you and condemn you? Are you afraid something bad is going to happen that will change your life drastically, an, an accident, an illness, a death? Are you afraid that in the end, sin will win and you'll be cut off from God? Well, guess what? There's no need to fear. There's no need to fear opposition, deprivation, condemnation, tribulation, or separation. That's the conclusion Paul reaches as he draws to a close the eighth chapter of Romans. He's already made it clear that we've been adopted into the family of God and that we are fellow heirs with Christ. He reminded us that the Holy Spirit was given as a guarantee of our redemption. 
He assured us that God is at work in our life, making everything that happens fit into a pattern for good. And he told us that because he foreknew us, God predestined that we be called, justified, and glorified. He predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son. So now Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? His answer is that in view of all that God has done for us, there is no need to fear anything. There's certainly no need to fear opposition. We're in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, if Paul had simply asked, who's against us, we would have no doubt started a list. On a personal level, we might have mentioned a family member or former family member, an employer or an employee, a neighbor, or just a rival from the past. On a philosophical level, we might have mentioned the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, progressive politicians, or the media. I'm sure we could have thought of someone who's against us. But when Paul said, if God is for us, who is against us, we realized it didn't matter. Opposition shrinks into insignificance when we're reminded that God is on our side. The armies of Saul were paralyzed by the giant Goliath until a little shepherd boy asked, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? They had forgotten that God was on their side. If God is for us, it does not matter who's against us. There's no need to fear the opposition if God is for us. And there's no need to fear deprivation, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know, if a billionaire gave you a mansion and promised to take care of you, would you worry about the utility bill? I doubt it. So why do we sweat the small stuff? You know, Jesus said, do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God knows what we need. And he's proven his willingness to meet our need. When we were in need of a Savior, he sent his own son to die for us. Don't you think a God who would do that will make sure our other needs are met as well? 
Of course he will. We don't have a stingy God. His resources are limitless. And he has promised that if we will trust him and demonstrate that we trust him by giving back to him one-tenth of our income, he will bless us materially. In Malachi 3.10, we read, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. We don't have to worry about needs going unmet. If we remember Christ died for us, and if we are expressing faith in our Heavenly Father's provision, there's no need to fear deprivation. And there's no need to fear condemnation. Verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. You know, far too many of us live in the shadow of our past. We know we have sinned and we know we deserve to be punished. So there's a cloud hanging over our head and we expect it to rain at any time. Someone's going to say, I remember you, or I know what you did, and our cover is blown, our respectability is shattered. It happens to politicians all the time, and it can happen to us. But it doesn't matter if God has declared us clean. You know, others may not forgive us for our past. And there may be temporal consequences to pay, but the only one who condemn us is Christ. And as J.B. Phillips has so beautifully put it, Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. We don't have to hide from our past if it's been forgiven. We have no need to fear condemnation because the judge has declared us free from sin and the prosecutor has become our defender. Now, that's not to say that bad things won't happen to us. But we have no need to fear Tribulation, verses 35 to 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Tribulation 
distress, or persecution doesn't shock us. We expect it. The psalmist long ago wrote, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He did not understand why everything was happening as it did, but it happened. He didn't like it, but he knew God was still there and would eventually deliver him. Now, it's true. Bad things happen to good people. No one suffered more than did our Lord. So we shouldn't be shocked when bad things happen to us. In fact, Peter put it this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Tribulation is inevitable in a fallen world. God allows bad things to happen so we can see the effects of sin on ourselves, on society, and on the world as a whole. But it doesn't mean he's abandoned us or forgotten us. He may even allow periods of famine, nakedness, peril or sword to inflict us. But we know from Romans 8:28 and from experience that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So no, these things don't defeat us. On the contrary, in all these things We win an overwhelming victory through him who has proved his love for us. Now notice Paul doesn't say through him who loves us. It's in the past tense. Him who loved us. Now that's not to say he doesn't still love us. But it recognizes the fact that if God had to prove his love for us every day, we would never be sure of it. We would always be waiting to see if he was going to love us today. So he proved it once and for all on the cross. And then he said, trust me. And we do. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can shake our faith in his love for us. So there's no need to fear separation, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, 
which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Even death can't separate us. It only brings us closer. For as Paul assured us in 2 Corinthians 5, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So we actually prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So no, death can't separate us from the love of God. And we've already seen that life with all its tribulations can't separate us from the love of Christ. So nothing in the present or in the future can separate us from Christ. And that includes all the heavenly hosts and demonic forces. No power on earth, under the earth or above the earth, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing will ever make God stop loving us. We are secure in his love. But that's not to say that we can't walk away. From his love. You know, love by its very nature demands the freedom not to love. So God never takes away our freedom to choose to love him. In spite of all he's done for us, we can turn our back on him. We can fall away from him. The writer of Hebrews made it very clear in the sixth chapter that even those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come can fall away. That's why in the 10th chapter, he admonishes us not to throw away our confidence, which has a great reward. And he pleads with us, to endure, so that when we have done the will of God, we will receive what was promised. So yes, it is possible to shrink back from our relationship with God in spite of all God has done for us, in spite of the fact that nothing can make him stop loving us and nothing can make us stop loving him, we can turn our backs on him. It is possible. But the writer of Hebrews concludes the 10th chapter by assuring us that his readers, that we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Yes, it's possible to walk away from the love of God. But no, we're not going to do it. Not after all he's done for us. As long as we remember that Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ reigns in power for us, and Christ prays for us, we are secure 
in his love. And we have nothing to fear. We have no need to fear opposition, deprivation, condemnation, tribulation, or separation. If you have that blessed assurance this morning, I'm going to want you to stand and sing it with me. If you don't, I want you to come and let me share with you what you need to do to find it. Let's stand and let's sing.